Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I hadn't finished college. You know, I'd gone to SF State for a year, and then I came back to SMC, and I got in a fight on campus, and I hated it. I was in remedial math, and, you know, it just wasn't for me. And that was kind of my declaration that I was going to be a full-time artist, and that was right around the time that I started going to the Poetry Lounge. Then I had all these interim period jobs that lasted, but... Sometimes I was on like a budget of like $5 a day or I would like many times pay for gas with change or buy my cigarettes with change, like a dump change on a, on a thing. And that was normal for me. And I didn't make any money for 12 years or something like that. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. I've got another story behind the story of a change maker for you. This week I'm talking to somebody who's inspiring a lot of people in the world through his words. His name is Adam Schmalholtz, but you may be more familiar with his stage name, which is NQ. So NQ, which stands for In Question, is one of the most electric spoken word performers on the scene. His poems, they really stick with you long after you see them. And his backstory is equally as fascinating. So in this conversation, we talked about how he first discovered his gift of poetry in school and how he developed and refined his unique style. We also talked about the lean years, of course, when he was in his 20s and he had every reason to quit, but he kept pressing on because he was obsessed. And while there was no clear way to make money as a spoken word poet at that time, expressing himself in that way was his oxygen. And so he talked about those times when he had to pay for food, literally with coins in his pocket, and he had to work these odd jobs. And then eventually, after putting in well over 10,000 hours in writing and performing, he got opportunities to perform for people like Quincy Jones and Hillary Clinton and even President Barack Obama. And he went on to win some of the biggest awards that a spoken word artist can win. He's also been featured on Deaf Poetry Jam. He's been on Oprah's Super Soul 100 list. His spoken word videos have received nearly 100 million views. He sold out the largest one-man poetry show in Los Angeles history. And I'm just so excited to share his backstory because like most changemakers, the backstory is never a linear process. And all of the ups and the downs, they end up playing a crucial role in navigating us along our path. And that's what makes this kind of story so compelling because it's something that we can all relate to. I'm so fortunate that I've gotten to witness NQ perform firsthand probably a dozen times. And I've been wanting to get him on the podcast for a while now. So I'm in heaven over here getting to have this conversation and without further ado, I want to introduce you to my friend and the legend, Adam Schmalholtz, also known as NQ. 
Adam, pleasure having you on the podcast. Excited to dive into your story. I always like to start these conversations off talking about childhood. And so my sort of icebreaker question for us is thinking back to little Adam, what was your favorite toy or activity as a child? I like to play G.I. Joe's. (laughs) Snake Eyes was my favorite because he was a mystery. You know, you never saw his face. He didn't talk. I don't know. My friend has a saying, mystery makes history. So maybe even at a young age, I was like drawn to that. And I had all the little toys and stuff and I would play with them and, you know, do these like elaborate wars. Would you play by yourself or would you play with friends? Well, the block that I grew up on had a lot of friends. You know, I lived in an upstairs unit and the person who lived right across it, literally you would walk upstairs and I was to the left and then this other family was to the right and they were both single mothers. And then there was a single father downstairs and all with one kid. And so I grew up with the kid right next door to me, literally being my brother. He was one year older than me. I mean, he was family immediately. I saw no differentiation. So we played a lot, but then I played a lot on my own because I was a single kid. And, and so I had a lot of uh, alone time to explore my own imagination. What were you getting out of playing with those GI Joes? If you can think back to that sort of younger mind. Well, it's not something I'm necessarily like proud of because it's really practicing war. Mm-hmm. And I still do that to this day. You know, I just got a PlayStation and I'm playing this zombie game called The Last of Us. And I just get completely wrapped up into this world. I tend to, as an adult, be drawn to intense things. And I think that it makes me uh, take a vacation from my reality for a while. I don't know if I'm consciously making that decision. You know, it's not like I'm like, I want to do this extreme thing in order to forget my life. But I just find myself drawn to that. And yeah, I used to love G.I. Joe's. I used to love playing guns in the alley. I remember we were playing guns in the alley once and a cop like came by and started screaming at us, you know, because at that point the guns were obviously realistic enough. And he was like, if I had my firearm on me right now, he started yelling at us. Yeah. I haven't thought about that in many, many years. Your dad was out of the picture. Not at all. Yeah. And you uh, used to pretend like he was on a secret mission, a mysterious mission with the FBI. I did. Yeah. I wrote that in one of my poems, um, called Father Time. Mm-hmm. But that was just one of the lengthy list of things I did to avoid <laughs> dealing with that loss. You know, when you're a kid, if you have your father in the picture, it's one thing. If you have your father in and out, it's another thing. But if you just don't see your father, then it's all in your mind. Mm. You know, I literally had seen one picture growing up. So I had no concept at all of who he was. And my mom and I had this deal that I could send him a card because we knew where he was. He was in New York. I could send him a card on my eighth birthday. So I was so excited about this. She didn't want me to do it beforehand. She didn't think I was mature enough. So on my eighth birthday, I 
send him a card for Father's Day that year. You know, it was like I turned eight. And so I sent it and then I just would go to the mailbox every day and wait. Literally like a fucking puppy. And it just never came back, man. And that was very heartbreaking for me because I still had hope, I think, at that time. And after that, I think my hope for that relationship went away. What did that do to your overall mental state? Do you remember it kind of affecting you or distracting you in any tangible way when it came to other things like school or your relationship with your mom or anything like that? Yeah. You know, look, man, I, despite the stories that I'm telling you right now, have a really, really vague and ambiguous foggy memory. I do not remember my life very well. You know, it's almost a joke amongst my friend group because they'll say, oh, remember the time that we did this and even in high school or something? I'm like, no. Hmm. You know, so I don't know whether I blocked it out. I don't know whether I've memorized so many rhymes that I don't have space for memories. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's like a dream. And I'm not even sure I was there. So it's hard for me to fully answer that question without it just kind of being conjecture. I definitely had a lot of issues. I had a lot of anger issues. I had sadness. I had feelings of loneliness and probably undiagnosed depression, but it wasn't all because of my father. It was just probably accentuated by that. And and I didn't have the proper tools to process or have an outlet for that at that time in my life. Do you remember if you were a good student having a mother who was a teacher? I was not a good student. I was okay in certain things like English. I've always had a proclivity for that. And there's a distinct possibility that I used that word wrong. So then that would be extremely funny. (laughs) But I was, I was okay at English. You know, I was okay at uh, history. I was okay at philosophy. I was okay at story. I think that's probably the main theme in all of those. You know, I was always drawn to story. But math, you know, forget about it. Science, forget about it. And it was not only that I wasn't good at it, I could not grasp, you know, it was like having a learning disability. You know, you would put something in front of me and I would try to figure it out and I just couldn't figure it out. So I I also had a real issue with spelling. So even though I was good at speaking language, in terms of like reading and in terms of spelling, it was never something that came easily to me. And so I just kind of decided that I was stupid when I was young. It was something that I distinctly remember thinking about myself. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm stupid. I'm like an average student and there's no point in putting any more effort into becoming much better than just maintaining that kind of average student space. By the way, to answer your question, my mom being a teacher had nothing to do with that. I, you know, that was all me. You know, I was a bit mathematically dyslexic as well. And so I can definitely relate to a lot of what you're saying. Who was the influence for music or were you that person in your circle? Well, it depends upon what age, because in the house, my mom liked Frank Sinatra and you know? No, I mean, but like hip hop. So that's, that's where I'm going with it. Like who, who, oh, okay. Who, How did, what was my entrance into that? Yeah. Who put you on to whatever the latest songs were that I heard ultimately inspired? Parents your... just don't understand. 
Okay. By Will Smith. And I said, you know, he is right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I... (laughs) That was as much as I thought. I said, this guy is on to something. Parents just don't understand. And I was in New York at the time because we had a lot of family there. My mom's from Brooklyn. And uh, so we would go back and I just like begged her to take me to uh, Best Buy or whatever it was. I don't remember the exact store and get me the cassette tape. So then I went back to my cousin's house and I put it in and I locked myself in a room for four hours. I don't know what made me do this other than curiosity and passion, I guess. But I loved this song so much and I agreed with the content of it so much. And I thought it was so creative that I wrote out every single lyric and I finished the whole song and then I would play, rewind, play, rewind. And then after I wrote out all of it, I would play the whole thing and I'd wrap the whole thing to it. And then I rewind it, play the whole thing, wrap the whole thing to it. And then I rewound it. And then by the end of it, I had memorized it. And then I was doing it without the paper. And I would say that was probably my my entrance into falling in love with hip hop. I mean, my my taste expanded pretty soon after. Did you perform it for your friends and for your family and cousins? Nobody wanted to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) How old were you at this time? I don't know. I mean, I'd have to do the math, but probably not far after that thing happened with my father. I mean, I, I had to be nine or 10 or something like that. Right. Right. Okay. Maybe 11. I don't know. So did you evolve into rapping? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I truly fell in love with not only rap music and the popular stuff, but hip hop and the underground scene and the freedom of self-expression and freestyling. And I've said often that that was my first form of meditation. Mm. And I think that's a good tagline you know, it's like a good thing to say because people can put it in their pocket for later. But I really do mean it. I mean, it was the first place that I went where I truly wasn't thinking about anything else. Talk a little bit about that, the genesis of that process. I mean, we start with parents don't understand. And then where does it go from there? Is it like, where were you finding your outlets for expression? Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, 
You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Yeah, I just started getting into other eclectic hip hop from Run DMC to Eric B and Rakim and then Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and Freestyle Fellowship and Gangstar. And, and as I expanded my taste, KRS-One was a big influence. I just started freestyling. When you're freestyling at first, you usually do it as a joke because it's hard to really take yourself seriously when you're horrible. It's hard to put words together off the top of your mind and make them rhyme and make them compelling to whoever is listening and to be able to defend yourself if you get into a battle. I mean, it, it certainly takes a lot of practice, even if you are naturally inclined, which I wasn't. So at the beginning, it was kind of like funny shit. And I would do it for myself or I would do it for my friends. And then at a certain point, I realized I was getting pretty good. And then I started to take it more and more seriously. When you say I'm practicing, what are you actually practicing? Like rhyming on this next words, next line? Are you practicing not thinking about what you're going to say next and just letting it flow? Like what, what are you practicing? Well, I'll throw it back at you. When you're meditating, you're learning things about doing nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are learning techniques that are ever-changing to reconnect to your mantra and drop deeper into that next level of consciousness, right? I would imagine that your meditations have changed over the years, but that you've learned so many different techniques of what works for you and then what works for you teaching other people. And it's similar for freestyling. It's like any craft. The more you do it, the more you figure out what your voice is. If you want to get down to the specifics, yeah, it's certainly like rhythm. It's being able to think a few steps ahead. It's having rhymes in your back pocket that you know will work, not memorized verses, but just snippets that you can kind of put together in different combinations. And then it's knowing when you're fully in the flow so that you have no idea what's going to come out of your mouth next. And you're surprising yourself, which is usually the most fun. It's doing it in different states of being inebriated you know, because that changes shit. If you're on shrooms or you're smoking weed or you're on Molly or you're, you know, uh, just drunk or something like that. Not that I'm promoting that to all the kids. I'm just being honest about what my experience was. So when you're sober, it's doing it when you're actually in a battle and your adrenaline is heightened. How do you actually like focus your energy, you know, and not get so angry that your mind gets scrambled? You know, because doing a battle is like a mental fight. Everything is on the line. It's survival if you take yourself seriously. So, yeah, there was a lot to learn. And, you know, there's always a lot to learn. Did you have a mentor at that time who was kind of coaching you or guiding you or, you know, giving you tips on how to do this? Yeah. So we got robbed pretty bad when I was like 12 or 13. There was like a beef that my mom had with some of the people in our neighborhood. And they were like young. They were like probably 19 or 20. And they were kind of druggies at the time. And so they broke into our 
place, but they really messed it up. They like cut her clothes and graffitied the walls and they ruined everything that they didn't take. And they took everything that was valuable. And then they broke into another place, like immediately in the area, like downstairs. So we left. We just basically like moved. That's a whole nother story. I mean, I, that certainly didn't feel good for me at that age to not be able to protect myself or her, or to feel like I was fleeing a situation. It was just really not a great feeling. But we wound up in this other neighborhood on the other side of Santa Monica. And I ended up meeting this kind of group of kids that were on the block and they were all older than me. One of them, Tony Medrano, was an MC at the time. And he was like three years older than me. But when you're that age, that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. You know, between 13 and 16 or 17, you know, that's like a real difference. And so he kind of like helped me to be able to hone my style. And, you know, all we would do is basically smoke weed and, and cipher. That was pretty much it. It was, in retrospect, one of the best times of my life. <laughs> I don't know about, about all this adult shit. I liked that time when I was, when I was just, uh, you know, responsibility-less. Well, you know, there's a beauty in that, too, because on one hand, you're, you're living your life basically off of imagination, you know, with very limited life experience, and you're discovering this new community Two questions, and you can blend them together. One is, how were you looking at success at that point? And two, what did you see yourself becoming as you got older? It's like at that, at that point and, in your life. Yeah, mm -hmm. really grandiose and boring now that I think back on it. I was under the impression that I was going to be like the doors of hip hop. Like I was going to da 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 da. And, this producer that I was working with at the time, who was insanely talented, was a really, really big thinker. And so he got me hooked on this idea that we were going to come in here and say something that was so important and move culture and all of this stuff. So I had this like really big idea about myself. And then I won the rap contest at my high school. It's funny to talk about this stuff because I never really do partially because I think it's uninteresting and partially because it has very little to do with what I'm actually doing now. It is the foundation for what I'm doing now, but they are different parts of my life. But anyway, I won the rap contest and I went from being like a kind of popular kid to being like very popular because I crushed it in front of the whole school. And all of a sudden my ego, like, blew up and I was like, yeah, I'm the fucking man. You know, you start believing your own hype, which is the fastest way to lose your voice. I'll tell any artist out there, aggressively maintain your humility as much as you can. You know, not everyone will see you that way, no matter what you do, but internally to consciously take steps to not take yourself too seriously is really important for maintaining an open channel for creativity to come through you. You're in Santa Monica slash LA, right? And mm -hmm. so this is the entertainment capital of the world. And being in high school in a place like this, I'm sure you may know of someone or maybe know of someone who knows of someone who's kind of like hit it big and, and there's this, this whole scene and you're really good at it. 
So there must have been some aspiration to meet the right person or have someone, you know, try to get next to someone who's connected to someone and ultimately get a record deal. Was that right, part but, of your thinking? Yeah, absolutely. But that, but that was, I would say, part of the problem in quotation marks for me at that time in my life is once you create these huge expectations, you either achieve it or if you don't achieve it, you start to figure out, well, why am I not achieving it and how do I have to change to achieve it? And in doing that, you start manipulating your truth. And for me, my truth was and has always been the biggest part of my art. Hmm. Like some people can create from almost a place of strategic manipulation and still come off in an authentic way and connect to an audience. I've never been able to do that. Hmm. So the only way that I really connect with people is by connecting with myself. And when we didn't get signed, you know, I mean, I didn't know any A&Rs. I mean, I was from this place that was supposedly the entertainment capital in the world, but I didn't know anybody. You know, that was my dream. Oh, if I could only meet an A&R. Ooh. And uh, you needed that at that time because there was no internet. You needed the middle person to put your stuff out to the world and create an audience. And so when that didn't happen, then the next demo I did was like more like, well, strategically, what can I do and say to make that happen? And then the next thing was strategically, what can I do? And I did that for years and years and years. And I think I got farther away from my voice. What I will say is during that process, I also ended up putting in my hours. So I'm way beyond my outlier hours and what I do. And it was partially because I just kept trying. And so I'm grateful for those years as well. So I don't know what the demographic of your school was like, but uh, you won a rap contest, you're a white boy. And, uh, you know, when you look at Eight Mile, which is one of my favorite movies, and even before I knew we were going to have this conversation when we we're having it, I was like on YouTube maybe a few weeks ago looking at clips of the, the final battle, the freestyle thing. And of course, you know, you have the black guys making fun of the white guy. And then you have Eminem, the white guy, making fun of himself to neutralize what he knew the black guys were going to say when they got up and rap. And I'm just mm -hmm. curious, was that an angle that you played either way as a young aspiring rapper? And number two, why do you suppose you won that rap contest? Were the well, peers the rap you're contest, rapping against? Yeah. Yeah. The rap contest wasn't a battle. It was people got up and did like, you know, songs or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so we had two days and a bunch of different people got up and did their songs. And my song won the first day. And then my song won the second day. You know, it sounds so stupid, but it was a big deal, you know? Felt but was it good. the content of what you were saying or your style? Like, what was it that made your song better? I don't know if it was better or worse, but I know that it was, it was the one that won. <laughs> and uh, I think that was because maybe my style or my creativity, I just had kind of a unique way of coming at it. Like I remember I wrote literally one of the verses I wrote for it was dissing the rap contest and me <laughs> deciding why I wanted to do something so stupid. And then me talking shit about the faculty, specifically by name, and then me giving props to all of the people in the school that I knew everybody knew. 
And it sounds strategic, but it wasn't. The first thing that came to my mind when I sat down to write the verse was like, all right, well, let me just tell how I got to this place that I'm even willing to do something that's so dumb. And so I think people responded to that. And then the second one I did was like this, I had read The, the Hobbit and I had written this sing-songy story rap about a knight who goes and kills a dragon in order to win the princess from the king. And he's like smoking weed along the way. And he like, it's just a whole fucking cool, fun story. And then I had a beatboxer do it. And so people really responded to that. But really what I wanted to say is that that's very separate from battling. And battling I was doing not in front of the kids in my high school. Those That's what happens in ciphers or happens in people's houses or it happens in alleys or wherever. And yeah, I did a lot of that over the years. And my strategy there was not to diss myself. I would come after people as much as I could. I mean, I've gotten in fistfights over battles before. So it was very serious to me. I have fond memories of, of that part of my life. If you could become an expert freestyle rapper who can battle with almost anybody, does that mean that reciting a pre-written song is like the easiest thing in the world or they have nothing to do with one another? No, they come from the same muscle. I mean, people will come up to me often after shows and they'll really be blown away by my memory. They don't understand how I can memorize so much material. And it's because I'm getting on stage and let's say I'm doing an hour or an hour and a half of rhymes they can't fathom. They're like, I, how did you possibly memorize all of that? Well, it's like anything else. It's one step at a time. And in this case, it's one rhyme at a time. If I started rhyming all of the memorized poems that I have, I could go on for three and a half hours straight. I would just weave them in and out of each other. And I can move them in different orders, almost like a jigsaw puzzle or Legos or something like that. That's how I can do it in my mind. But that's no different than any other MC. So when people come up to me and they're so amazed by my memory, look, if Nas, if you took the music away from Nas and Nas just started all of the different albums and verses that he has memorized, it's insane. I mean, he's a genius. But I think his genius also came from hard work. He did it over and over and over again, and he built that muscle up. So I've done that myself, and now it's something I can lift with. When you do a YouTube search for the Dave East freestyle with Fun- Funkmaster Flex, yeah. the Maison General, and the Tariq freestyle, like all those three freestyles, right, which anybody can listen to and watch, what do you see that the average person like me who doesn't know what it takes to do this wouldn't see? First of all, I'll say this. I don't know specifically those three freestyles. Oh, you haven't seen those? No, 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 no. I have seen them. What I'm trying to say is I don't know whether they were written or whether they were freestyle. Tariq, Black Thought, is one of the best freestylers I've ever seen in my life. I mean, the first hip-hop concert I ever went to was a Roots concert when I was like 16. Somehow they snuck me into, uh, what was it, House of Blues And it was me and a few friends and we got backstage and I smoked weed with them. 
What? It was <laughs> fucking amazing, dude. And then I went out and I saw it was for the Do You Want More album. And I went out and and I watched them and it was one of the best concerts. It, mm. Honestly, it was one of the best nights of my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just a- remember jumping up and down and just being so immersed in the music and the sound. So I have the highest respect for him. What I will say separate from that is, is that when you used to say freestyle at that time, it meant freestyle. Mm. Like it a hundred percent was a freestyle. Whereas now, oftentimes when they say freestyle, they just kind of mean a verse that's not out. Mm. You know, a lot of times when people go on the radio shows, they just do verses that aren't out. If Black Thought freestyled that thing, that thing that we saw, that eight minutes, seven, eight, yeah, eight minutes thing, he should be the next president of the United States. <laughs> Is that the requirement for? I, I really, I, I can't even fathom if that's a real freestyle. Even if he wrote it and he put them together, it's one of the most incredible powerful pieces of art that i've seen in years so to me that doesn't matter whether he freestyled it or he wrote it and it's not my place to say one way or the other but i am saying that the definition over time has changed in the culture of what people expect when you say freestyle when you're going on these morning shows Hmm. what was your uh your first rap name oh that's embarrassing (laughs) It it was gotham I didn't know this whole thing was going to be about hip hop, man. That's pretty funny. I, I love it actually. Cause I never get to talk about this. I, and that I said to myself, Oh, come up with a name. Uh, maybe Gotham. I it's not even like, I really like Batman. I was just trying to think of something dark and cool. And that went out within a month. And then my friend said, you should be inquiry because you asked so many questions. Cause I was very curious and, you know, always asking questions to people about themselves and life. My mom is very curious, you know, if she what if she was in the Peace Corps, she marched with Martin Luther King, you know, if if she didn't become a teacher, she would have been a journalist. Mm. And she always asks people questions. She will like almost interview you if she hangs out with you. So I think I got that from her. So my friend said inquiry and I said, Yeah, that's good. And then quickly people started calling me uh NQ. And that's that's where the name stood. Did you have a favorite question to ask people? back then no but i've never understood why people have a hard time conversing and i suppose it's similar to someone saying to me i don't understand why you have a hard time with math Mm -hmm. you know i mean it was easy for me and you just ask one question and then when someone gives an answer you ask why and then it makes them think about it a little bit deeper and then they'll answer that. And then you say something that relates in your life. And then you reveal something and then you ask them something deeper. And pretty soon the person is really willing to be open and to share. I don't think I was doing that specifically when I was in high school, but I do think it's part of the growth of how I uh, interact with people. And uh, talk about meeting your dad for the first time. Well, my mom had gotten a letter about my grandfather on his side dying. There was an obituary and it was like, basically 
who his kids were and who his grandkids were. And of course I wasn't included because I was a secret to my father's side of the family. I have two brothers and two sisters that I don't have relationships with still to this day. I met one of them one time in person. So I always felt that. I always felt like I was like a secret, like they weren't married and it was very complicated. And so my mom just was pissed off about that for some reason. And she never got child support. So mm-hmm. she raised me on her own, you know, salary, teacher salary. So she decided she was going to do something about that. And that's what started the process. And I told her that I didn't want her to. And she told me that she was going to do it anyway. And in retrospect, even though I do think it was her decision, I don't like to use the word regret, but it's, it's something I wish that I would have more clearly stood up for and really said, that's not what I want. So anyway, so she ended up getting in contact with them and ultimately I met him and then there was like a lawsuit. I was like 16 or 17 at that. I don't know, 15 when I met him. And then when the actual lawsuit happened just to get the remainder of whatever the child support was and had to take paternity tests and the whole thing. So it wasn't like a fairy tale process. What was your mental state like post meeting your dad for the first time and, and not having a relationship still? I don't remember. You know, I'd, I'd love to, to give you like a, an eloquent answer, but <laughs> I, I really don't remember, man. I, I, I remember I was coming from some sort of summer camp and I had hooked up with this girl and I had a hickey and I thought I was so cool. <laughs> you know, I had this hickey and I was 15. I don't know. And then I met him and he had brought his new wife to sit down and from my perspective, be a security blanket, but she didn't know about me either. And then they started arguing my mom and him pretty quickly about how I was created. They have different stories. He basically thinks she tricked him. She said, she said she wanted to have a baby and he didn't ask about contraception and all that stuff. And so I am like the immaculate conception in a very weird way, not, not putting myself in the category of Jesus, but at all, let me make that clear. You don't have to remove it from the podcast. I'm just making it clear. (laughs) I'm not putting myself in that category, but I was created out of like something that isn't agreed upon. There's no reality for how I came into the world. There's not an agreed upon reality. There Mm. was no love and there's not an agreed upon reality. So they started arguing and then the wife jumped in and then I said, I literally stopped her and I said, you can't talk in this conversation. And she said, excuse me. I said, you don't know any more than I know. Neither one of us were there. And I said, to be honest, I don't really care about the specifics because here I am and you weren't there. And I don't respect that. I don't respect that you walked away from your responsibility. And I fucking went into him, you know, and then uh, we finished the meal and kind of said our goodbyes and yeah, I can count on my two hands how many times I've been in the same space with him mm. after that. What he did for a living, I don't want to go into too much specifics because I don't like to tell other people's stories in that way. But what he did for a living, I deeply respect. 
he was a, a lawyer and he did a lot of civil rights work and got a lot of people off that were wrongfully accused of crimes that they didn't commit. So it's very strange for me to have such a high respect for what someone does in life and such a low respect for how they showed up or didn't show up for me. I remember the first time I even saw him was on Dateline. My mom was like, your dad's on TV. So that's a weird dichotomy for me. But who you are is what you do. But just because you're an amazing business person doesn't make you an amazing father. Just because you're an amazing father doesn't make you an amazing partner. Just because you're an amazing partner doesn't make you an amazing friend. And I think it's important for all of us, but I'm talking to myself, to try to find that balance and to do our best to show up in all those areas. You know what's interesting, man, is if I'm a soul and I'm about to incarnate on planet Earth, which is one of the most gangster places where you can go to develop as a soul, and I know that I want to, as a part of my evolution, I want to have the expression of being a spoken word artist, and I'm giving a selection of parents to choose from, I can't imagine a better situation to be born into (laughs) in terms of coming up with content (laughs) that really speaks to people's heart. And so... I think it's it's important to all, and I know you've you've looked at things on that level as well. But I think it's important to acknowledge that as well in this conversation. Was Tony the one that introduced you to the poetry lounge? No. So that was wow. This is a real retrospective. It's fun. <laughs> I've done so many podcasts, but I've, I'm enjoying this because when you ask somebody a question that they're not expecting, then they have to think about their answer right. rather than doing their stock answer. So. No, I was in New York for something, and there's a guy named Question, who that's what he goes by, and he was an MC and a poet. I was 19 at the time, and he took me to like a contest in Harlem. And so we went, and I won that contest. It was like, you know, a slam. And it was the first time that I had done my rapping a cappella, and just people responded to it. And then I came back to LA and question again, hit me up. And he said, Hey man, I I got this flyer for this thing that's happening on Tuesday night. It's an open mic. And I had such a good experience when I was at the thing in Harlem that I went, all right, you know what? I'll go to this thing. And so I went and I fucking never left. Mm. And that was, that was the poetry lounge. And I put up work on the first night I jumped up, signed up on the list and, you know, started spitting and, and then, I mean, blinked, and it was 14 years later. So you 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 refer to Question as Question. Were people referring to you as NQ at the time, or were you still like Adam? And then when you were performing, you introduced yourself as NQ. Well, I, the difference between my social circle and my professional circle was more separate at that time. So mm-hmm. if I went to like a Hanukkah party, I'm Adam, <laughs> <laughs> which is still something that I would do now. I mean, you know, I introduced myself as Adam, you know, but yeah. And all the poetry lounge stuff, everybody was calling me in Q from the beginning. And all of my friends from high school were calling me Q. I mean, I had been making music for a long time and, you know, in the small circle that I had, the music was something that people really responded to and played a lot. So that was definitely a, a part of my identity at that point. 
So I'm about six years older than you. And I remember before that seeing the movie Slam Mm -hmm. and being obsessed with Amethyst Rock uh, Mm -hmm. by Saul Williams. Then I saw Saul in the subway one day with this pushing a baby uh, stroller with his little daughter in it, his daughter Saturn. And he told me he was performing at a few places. And I went out to Brooklyn Moon and saw him perform and a few other places and I saw him perform. I ended up getting up at an open mic one night and doing a little bit of poetry. And, but I remember the feeling and getting that feedback and how much fun it was. And, you know, for you at this time, you've rapped, you've won rap contests, you freestyled your ass off, you put in all these thousands of hours. How much of a difference was it for you doing the acapella rap slash poetry thing versus music, rapping, you know, and all the like movements that probably associate are associated with that? Well, first of all, let me just say this, actually, before I answer your question, Saul Williams is one of the best poets I've ever heard live and in every possible way you can experience him. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if people are not fans of Saul Williams, definitely go, go check out his stuff. And that movie Slam was so good. Even now it's, it's fantastic. Unbelievable. He had another movie called Slam Nation, which was a documentary before that, Mm. that was about the slam competitions, which we ended up winning in 2004. I think Mm -hmm. that was the date. But that was before I was even getting into it. I was into it and I was at the Poetry Lounge, but I hadn't done any slams yet. So I remember the first year I did slam, I think he performed live on stage during the championships and just absolutely slayed. And I wouldn't call us friends, but we're friendly. We've done shows together and he's somebody that I deeply respect as an artist. So check his shit out if you haven't. (laughs) It was a very, very fast transition for me to move from what I was doing in music into poetry. But it took a very long time for me to figure out really what my voice was and how to tell my truth the way that I wanted to which, you know, is a constant discovery. It's, it's a, a process, not a product, but it definitely became a more honed process over the years, the more that I did it. Also with the poetry scene, unlike the rap scene, you're writing the material beforehand, and I'm assuming you're rehearsing the material beforehand. And so it's a different process. Would you say it's a different process with the poetry, with the slams? I was writing verses as well. Am I understanding what you're asking? Well, you tell me, what's the difference in writing a verse for rapping versus writing a verse for poetry at that time in your life? Most of the people in my community were heavily influenced by hip hop if they weren't MCs themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, many, many of the poets were MCs themselves. So it's not like I had this unique experience <laughs> in terms of transitioning from hip hop into poetry. A lot of my community had that experience and we would all vibe off of each other's style, each other's content. I mean, there was rarely a night when I wasn't at the lounge when I wouldn't go to my pen and pad because I was sparked by something that another poet did on stage. And some of the best art experiences I have ever had is watching a poet from the audience And that's why it's kind of sad to me in some ways that poetry has not fully been brought into the mainstream the way that it deserves. It's sad for the audiences that don't understand how transformational spoken word can be. 
And it's sad for the poets because you have generations of some of the most creative people and important thinkers and philosophers who have had a difficult time making a living and getting their work out to the masses the way that they've deserved. Were you putting up a new piece every Tuesday night? Sometimes I would recycle, but I was almost always putting up new shit. That was the one thing about me. I was never one of the best people. I was one of like, you know, the upper middle class of talent, I would say. And there were so many people that I really looked up to and learned so much from, but I was very prolific. That was one of my things, man. I kept writing and I kept putting up new material. And one thing I'll say about myself to give myself some credit is when other people moved on out of necessity, you know, for good reason, some people had kids, their priorities changed, you know, different things like that. I've just fucking kept at it, man. And I struggled for many, many years to make a living and couldn't figure out what direction I was supposed to go. But something in me kept writing and kept wanting to share what I was writing. And if you follow your enthusiasm long enough, the path will lead the way. Do you remember back in those early, early days what your amethyst rock was? Like, was there a piece that you wrote that just like landed and everybody wanted to hear it all the time? I would have to say that that stupid thing that I wrote about the knight and the dragon, it was called the dragon song. And it was just this ridiculous piece, but it was so creative and so imaginative and it just stood out from anything else anyone would hear. So it was memorable. You still Um, remember it? Yeah. Yeah, Can you drop a couple bars? Oh God, nobody wants to hear that. (laughs) It's like, it's like, I'm a knight in this past place, riding on a horse through fields and streams on a plotted course. Gonna gain the affection of the crown king's daughter. Your first I be needing the approval from her father. I rode all night through ghosts and goblins, treacherous terrain and thieves to be robbing until I reached the castle. And this is what he said. If you want to wed my daughter, then the dragon must be dead. So I grabbed my horse and grabbed my shield and trampled back down that very same field. I trampled for a spell and when I reached the cave, I got up off my horse so the dragon could be slayed. Now the dragon fought hard, but I fought harder. He fought smart, but I fought smarter. He took away my sword and I was really scared, but I brought along my knife, so I guess I was prepared. I stabbed him in his eye. He was open to the gash. Watched the dragon dying, went and lit up some of my stash or something like that. And then and then it goes something. I went back to the so I could claim my wife and I rode all night through ghosts and goblins. Yeah, it's like Dude, where did you where did you come up with that? Did you watch Puff the Magic Dragon or something? No, man, I was high and I was reading The Hobbit. <laughs> and I was like, man, this would be cool. And I just started writing this stupid thing. But then when you put a beatbox to it, mm-hmm. it was actually kind of fresh. Like where if somebody was like beatboxing beneath it, it gave it an edge. So it was a kind of an interesting combination between a cool, catchy melody, interesting rhythms concepts that you would never imagine in that environment and then a live beat that gave it life you know and it was it was just something that people like to hear you know were all your pieces at that time kind of sing-songing in that way or was that it was the only one so when you went into that people knew okay this is the dragon piece this is the the dragon song that's how stupid it it is we called it the dragon song (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my God. I love it. I love yeah, it. I'd like to sincerely apologize to anyone who's listening to this. That, that I'm like <laughs> taking your time talking about the dragon song. You mentioned before that in your 20s, you struggled. You struggled while you were being prolific. What were some of the ways you were funding your lifestyle? I mean, I had some interim jobs for a while. You know, I worked as like a night receptionist, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I would just write raps. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I worked at a recreation center and I like ran the gym. I would just write raps (laughs) and I would answer the phone and... I was such a dick to the customers, man. They would come in, they'd say, excuse me, uh, da, 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 da. And I'd be like, it's in the brochure. Like, you know, I was just very, I was very kind of angry at that point in my life. Smiling was hard for me. Smiling was like lifting weights. If I didn't know you, if I knew you, I was cool. Did you have a faith that it was going to take off? You just had to put the time in and just keep, just stay with it and just take these little BS jobs as long as you had to before that time came? No, I did not. I had an obsession and the obsession moved me forward, sometimes in very unhealthy ways, but I couldn't find a way to do something else. I hadn't finished college. You know, I'd gone to SF State for a year and then I came back to SMC and I got in a fight on campus and I hated it. I was in remedial math and You know, it just wasn't for me. And that was kind of my declaration that I was going to be a full-time artist. And that was right around the time that I started going to the Poetry Lounge. And then I had all these interim period jobs that lasted. But like, even at the rec center, man, I was like stealing money from them. Like I was 22 or something like that. It's not something that I'm proud of, you know, but like it was how I would get by. Mm -hmm. I had this whole like racquetball hustle that I was doing. And it was how I would pay for food. I mean, sometimes I was on like a budget of like $5 a day, or I would like many times pay for gas with change or buy my cigarettes with change, like a dump change on a, on a thing. And that was normal for me. And I didn't make any money for 12 years or something like that. I remember I made like probably 30 grand when I was like 31 or something. And I thought I had hit the lotto, dude. Which, by the way, for a lot of people still is. So I don't mean to demean that, you know, or anyone else's experience. But when I hit that number, I was like, woo, you know, like I could pay for things without worrying. But like I said, you can't tell life where it's going to go. You can just put in your order and then let go and take the ride. Okay, that's a really philosophical perspective. And I'm, I'm curious now, when you were in your 20s, was there like an Obi-Wan Kenobi presence that helped you sort of see things in that way? Or did, how did you come up with that outlook? Not in my 20s. When I was in my very early 30s. Mm-hmm. I kind of realized that I hadn't allowed any mentors in my life. And I realized that whatever I was doing wasn't working because I couldn't really maintain a relationship. I was abusing like sleep substances 
you know, like I couldn't go to bed without taking drugs, basically. And then I graduated to Xanax for a few years. And I had convinced myself that it was nothing to do with anxiety, that it was only a sleep issue. And there was alcohol stuff. And I was never like an alcoholic, but I would say that it was not helping me to make good decisions. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have any money. All of my friends had kind of moved on, if that makes any sense. Like the high school group, they had all gotten married and had kids or, you know, some had issues, but they had moved on. And then the Poetry Lounge crew at that time had kind of moved on as well because most people had either figured out how to make poetry in a business in, into a business for themselves, or they had kind of moved on with another thing and decided that poetry was going to be something that was always a part of them, but it wasn't going to be the main focus. And around that same time, I had given up on my dream of rocking stadiums as an MC. And I had just decided that I was going to be open to anything, whether it was poetry or acting or music. And I met a guy named Ross Hogarth, who really was my mentor at that time in my life, and is still a very close friend. And he kind of saw what I was doing. I was doing shows around LA. And, you know, I would sell out 150 seats or 250 seats or something like that. And I would do these poetry shows. He saw that and he saw that there was real potential there. And that I was having impact on the audience, but I had no real direction. And he's a Grammy-winning producer and engineer. And so he did a lot of things for me. But one of the main things that he did is he connected me with basically like a production team and also a studio out of Santa Monica called Rock Mafia. And Rock Mafia has become like a second family for me. And they set up a meeting and I went in and did my poetry and then they came to one of the shows and eventually they decided to sign me for a publishing deal to write lyrics for uh, songs. And that was really, I would say, an entrance into a new world. When you were doing those shows and, and selling out, you know, the seats and 100, 150 seats, how were your business skills at that time? Were you like managing everything and you were like putting up ticket websites and then running up and setting up the chairs. And how were you doing it before Rock Mafia? Yeah, I was. But I also had a great community. Mm -hmm. You know, the community of the Poetry Lounge and this place called the Actors Lounge that I had set up, which was like the brother of the Poetry Lounge. My great friend, uh, who's an actor, Omari Hardwick, and my girlfriend at the time, Ida Darvish, they were, you know, Omari's a poet as well, great poet. But both of them are serious actors. And we were just thinking one day, it sucks that everybody has to like pay to do showcases in LA. Why don't we just create an open mic for actors? So we did that and we founded it together and we ran that for like five years. And so there was a real community of artists in Los Angeles that helped each other out. So a lot of them helped me produce those shows and helped me set up chairs so that I didn't have to do that before going out and did it for no money at all, did it because... They cared about me and for the love of the art. And I tried to get them back in, in the ways that I could when they put things on, you know? Dude, Omari has this incredible story of living in his car. and I think it was Denzel Washington or somebody helped, helped mm -hmm. him kind of make ends meet in Los Angeles. Was that during that time that... Uh, I mean, Omari's my brother, man. Omari lived... We lived together for six months. 
he was on my couch. We would go back and forth. He bought it, brought a turtle into the house without asking me. And one day we got in an argument over it. I was like, why the fuck am I cleaning this turtle fucking case? And he's like, you, and (laughs) you know, he's, he's family, man. I've spent time with his family in Atlanta and that's my brother. Man, his one man show in Brooklyn a couple years ago. Did you see it? I did not. No, I saw that. Oh my God. It was incredible. It was yeah. incredible. I was so honored to have a chance to go and see it. I think it was opening night. And yeah, just every single aspect. I had no idea that he was a poet. Obviously, now I know he's got, a, I think he had a podcast or he still has a podcast. Yep, poetic. He talks about, yeah. But at, that was my first time really seeing him in that medium. And it was just, I was blown away by the attention to detail and the storytelling and the music and just, now it makes sense. Why yeah, Omari so is a true artist. You know, we he was on the team that won the national championships with me. We did a piece that was called Mr. Black and Mr. White, where it was like an interview. And mm-hmm. I pretended to be black and he pretended to be white. Mm-hmm. And we got in a conversation, a political conversation about race in America. Went back and forth and argued with each other. And then eventually in the end, kind of came together and saw what was possible. That was certainly one of those signature pieces when he and I did that together, you know, people, people really responded. So when you guys won the, the, the championship, was that when you had your sort of big break where you started, I guess, getting more opportunities, financial opportunities, or was it rock mafia in that relationship or both? No, it was rock mafia. That's what I was trying to express earlier, you know, is that it's unfortunate but you think that you would win the national slam championship, you know, for poetry and your life would change, but you wake up the next day and you put on your draws and you go to work. I mean, there's, there's nothing happens. I think it was like $1,500 that we split up between the team and, you know, you take a couple of pictures and you get that experience of performing in front of 2000 people and, and performing in front of your peers, which is Mm -hmm. a beautiful, beautiful thing to have as a memory. But your life doesn't change. You know, when I was on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam, I thought my life's going to change. But no, your life doesn't change. You know, I I think that Deaf Poetry Jam, which was the quintessential poetry show of our spoken word generation, was still limited because it was a poet going up and doing a poem and then leaving. And I'm not in any way criticizing the show because I, I'm grateful to that show, not only for my experience with it, but for what it did for poetry. But what mm. I will say is if somebody loved that poem, they would fall in love with the poem and not the poet. You know, and if you want to break a genre, you have to make a star. And if you make a star, it's an anomaly. And then if you make a few stars, then the night is going to shine. And so... I think for the future, if we get that opportunity again, it'd be really great if poets could do even 15-minute sets or 25-minute sets, because then I would fall in love with the person. And I would say, I want to know more about this person and this person's work, rather than saying like, yeah, you know, I agree. That was dope, which was what happened for Deaf Poetry Jam. But it also gave a lot of people careers, man. So, you know, I have the highest regards for it, but I'm also thinking of 
what's possible for the future of poetry. I don't know if you are familiar with this, this uh, Washington Post experiment where they brought the violinist Joshua Bell down into one of the D.C. metro stops, had him play the violin and all the $3 million violin, played for 45 minutes. I think he collected something like $40 <laughs> from passerbys. I think like eight people stopped to watch and that kind of thing. And the question was, if there is beauty happening in a place where people aren't expecting it, will they stop and pay attention? And I'm sure you've had your own versions of that experiment. Cause I've, you know, we've known each other now for, I don't know, maybe 10 or more years. Mm-hmm. And I've seen you perform several times. And I've also seen a video of you performing on uh, Abbott Kinney. You were doing the Valentine's day thing and people were like walking by and barely paying attention to you. And I'm just curious what your experience was, has been like in, in the, in the years that you've been evolving into who we know you to be now, which is this, you know, damn near world famous poet in Q. Do you find something special about performing in front of people who don't know you or, or are you more inclined to perform for people who already have an appreciation for what you do and how you show up? It's an interesting question. I mean, I have performed countless times in every possible environment. And so it's hard to give you a real answer. I like that because it's forced me to develop different ways of connecting in different environments. In terms of this violinist that you were talking about, right? He was in a situation where he is a world-class musician creating on a world-class instrument in an environment that doesn't recognize the value of what he's doing. And it makes you consider, well, what is value? And what is beauty? Value is only what we say it is collectively. You know, we all say that is valuable. Like, for example, you know, when I negotiate, which I don't do, but let's say my manager and I had an agreement about negotiation. We don't negotiate from a a place. We learned this many years ago. We don't negotiate from a place of like, this is what our rate is. We negotiate from a place of this is what the history is. Because people can argue with a rate. They can't argue with history. Because history then says what the value is. If someone else has said, this is valuable, then you say, this is what the value is. And then the person says, I either have that or I don't have that. But they're not going to argue with what the value is. And I think the environment has a lot to do with whether or not people recognize what the value is. So. I have performed in every possible situation and had the worst performances anyone could imagine and have crashed and burned hundreds of times. And my skin is a little bit thicker now. And so I'm able to experiment in how I want to connect with whatever environment I'm in. Sometimes it's fun to have no one know me and have a huge stage. Sometimes it's fun to be in a living room of friends. Sometimes it's fun to perform to one person and just like deeply connect with that person. But all have their own value for me and hopefully they have their own value for whoever's listening. 
You know, it's interesting you talk about value because it reminds me of this other story about Picasso leaving the cafe and this guy hands him a napkin and says, hey, could you just scribble down something on this napkin for me? And he does so and he hands it back to him and he says, that'll be a million dollars. And the guy goes, wait a minute, that took you 10 seconds. Mm. He goes, well, it took me 50 years to learn how to do that in 10 seconds. And as a spoken word artist, people would think, oh, it's easy for this guy. It's just, hey, in cue, can you do something quick for us real, you know? I'm sure you get that kind of thing all the time. So I'm curious, how do you negotiate that when it comes up? Because Chris Rock even said, you know, he said, I can go to a funeral and people will want me to get up and tell a joke. And I'm like, I don't even know this person who died. So how do you, how do you deal with that? I just set good boundaries for myself and I try to pay attention to what I actually want to do. You know, it's a bad feeling to do stuff that you don't want to do unless you know why you're doing it. Sometimes you all have to do something you don't want to do, but there's a a reward from that. Even if the reward is just, I did something good, or it's something that I feel truly is my responsibility to show up in this situation. But then there's other times when literally people just say yes to stuff that they don't want to do. And they don't know why they don't feel good later. (laughs) And it's because they're not paying attention to whether or not they really wanted to say yes or no. So I do my best to pay attention to when I really want to say yes so that I can fully say yes or when I want to say no so that I can fully say no. And I also have come to a conclusion that people don't have to understand your boundaries in order to respect them. They just have to respect them. So if you're clear about what your boundaries are, you don't need to convince anyone of anything. You can just set your boundaries and you can ask them to respect them. And if they don't, then you can just walk in the other direction. Love that. You've done workshops all over the world. You've now been doing this for 25 years. I know. And I've heard you say, I'm still finding my voice. What do you mean by that? Well, if you're not growing, you're dying. And I'm not necessarily saying that as a direct correlation with capitalism because I'm a conscious capitalist. And I think growth without a conscience is unsustainable, clearly. But in your own personal life, you have to be moving forward in some way. And you have to be challenging yourself and you have to explore. And so in my journey as an artist, I don't want to reach an endpoint. Because if I reach an endpoint, I'll be done. Why would I like feel finished and then just like press repeat, 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 repeat? That's so you know, boring. I'm the first person in my audience. I'm the only person in my audience at the beginning. You know, recently, like I've been reapproaching my art because I realized, and this isn't a bad thing. It's just a realization in stages that unfold. I realized I've been a little too content focused recently. Like I've been too focused on what I am saying. And so What has happened is my rhythms have gotten a little bit predictable because Mm -hmm. I'm more focused on what it is that I want to say than how it is that I'm saying it. And I realized I needed to get back to play in terms of playing with the rhythms and the rhymes so that the focus of my creation was on that exploration of the rhythm and the rhyme. And then what I'm saying comes after. It was almost like 
you know, what I'm saying has been driving the car. And now I want the rhythm and the rhyme to be in the front two seats. And then what I'm saying to be in the back. And that's made me say things that I couldn't have planned because they have come out of the words. The other thing that I find really interesting, and I have have to admit, I haven't been to a a ton of, of spoken word concerts, if you will. But, you know, when you're up there on stage, man, you're such a great storyteller. And so you start off telling these stories or giving just an observation or commentary. And it's kind of like you're, you're talking to one person and you're having this very intimate conversation with them over coffee. And it's almost like you don't even realize that you've slipped into the poem. And so I'm just curious in your own preparation, where does the commentary stop and the poem start? Like, how do you know, okay, I'm not going to include, this is going to be a part of the commentary. This is where the actual poem begins. Well, they're created separately. And Mm -hmm. then I weave them together to tell a larger story. And it's a jagged story, but it does have a beginning, middle and an end. So they're compartmentalized for me. But then when I'm performing them live, I like them to feel very fluid so that people are not sure when a story ends and when a poem starts. What I will say is that the stories came out of a necessity to have some variety and some humanity and some humor on stage. Because if I'm doing one poem for three minutes or five minutes, that's like one thing. If I'm doing a 15 minute set, that's another thing. But if you're doing an hour, nobody wants to be rhymed at for an hour. (laughs) Nobody wants that, man. And the other thing is because I'm the first person in my audience, oftentimes I'm saying lessons that I need to learn and relearn to myself over and over again. And that can come off as preachy to people. If I'm not careful, it can come off like I'm on a pedestal and I know all this shit when really I'm just reminding myself of the stuff that I forget on a daily basis and have to relearn. So what happens is the stories are self-effacing and the stories bring me back down to earth with the audience because I'm teasing myself most of the time about how I'm fumbling through life like everybody else is. And so it kind of goes back and forth between, you know, somebody who can't figure it out and somebody who has it all figured out. And then it goes back to someone who can't figure it out. And each time I do that and there is humor, people lean in and they trust me a little bit more because they know that I don't think I'm better than them. You came up with this masterpiece, Inquire Within. You strategically launched it at right at the beginning of the pandemic <laughs> so that we'd have nothing better to do but sit home and, and, and read, and read, oh, and read the book. No, but you, you have this really beautiful cover that is a, is a bit of a, uh, an optical illusion of a tree with roots and you can turn it upside down and then you turn it to the side. It also looks like something else that represents the two halves of the book. And I just think that's very, very ingenious. Talk a little bit about the process of creating that. How involved were you in that ideation of of the cover? I was very involved. I, I found the image or a version of the image in a tarot card Mm. and I just liked it. And I thought this would be a great cover. And so I brought it back to the people at Harper one and they did their own 
version of it. And then of course it changed in quite a number of ideations, but, but the concept was always there that, you know, the branches mirror the roots and the roots mirror the branches. So if you turn it upside down, the roots become the branches. And then when you turn it to the side, it's uh, lungs. And then of course, that's why we decided to name the two parts of the book, inhale and exhale, which is a nice tip of the hat to you as a meditation teacher, you know, but that really is all we're doing here. You know, from the moment that we're born to the moment that we leave is we inhale and we exhale. And the inhale for me is the personal poems and the exhale is kind of the social and political. So the idea is change yourself, change the world. And I, I wish I was so ingenious to plan out the release of the book, but no, man, this was a fucking nightmare scenario to try to release this book during the week of the height of the anxiety. It was March 31st. Everything was locking down. Man, people were losing their minds. And it was extremely hard, if I'm being honest with you, to self-promote during that time because I had my own shit going on. But the book was medicine for me to write. And I knew that it was medicine for people to read. And the responses have and continue to be incredible. And also just, you know, when you're a first time author and you have a big platform as you do, a publisher has a tendency to take a bigger financial risk on you. So they give you a nice little advance to, you know, make sure it's worth your while and, and win, win that bid. And so obviously their expectation is, okay, we need you to do X, Y, and Z when the book comes out. So there's that added pressure of, you know, if it was just up to your own devices, you'd probably like, all right, I'll promote it next month or whatever when everything dies down. But you have, you have the publisher's requirements as well. And so that, that probably had you getting out there and trying to find, well, you know, if, if anybody could find a clever way to say something and promote something, I would imagine that a spoken word artist would be able to figure it out. So, uh, but it's yeah, been doing really well. I'm not very good at self-promotion. I've never been, I've never been great at it, but I did have a responsibility to not only my creative partners, but my publishers, which I, I really came to become friends with them and care about them as people. So I had a responsibility to my art. I had a responsibility to my team and I had a responsibility to the publishers and the agency to, and even the fans, you know, to say, all right, it's not ideal. And I know that everyone is going through a lot of pain and suffering right now, but hopefully this can be a light. Is your most recent collaboration, the speak easy, is that self-published or is that also through your publisher? No. So the publisher for Inquire Within is Harper One. Okay. It's like the spiritual division of Harper Collins, basically. So they do the Alchemist and the Four Agreements and all of that, mm-hmm. that type of stuff. Books that I'm a real fan of. And then the Speakeasy Project, we partnered with Ali Michelle and a team at something called Office Party. And so they do a lot of like the back end on the digital side of things and the design side of things. And we got 23 of kind of the most powerful poetic voices we could find right now. And we just asked them, give us four truths that you want the world to hear right now through your poems. And they all gave us unreleased poetry. Mm -hmm. And we coupled that with photographs and made a beautiful, beautiful book. 
And if it's successful, we'll do another volume. So we have a speakeasy volume one that's out now for 10 days and people can buy a digital copy or a coffee table book or both. And if it's successful, then we'll continue to find other poets and put together these compilation books. I just really believe in the art form. And I love the idea of bridging kind of the Instagram poets and the spoken word poets generationally into one place that can hopefully say something that's moving and meaningful for the audience. What happens after 10 days? Well, we wanted to create scarcity. So we're not really sure what's going to happen after 10 days. We might keep it going. We might do a resurrection sale around the corner. I'm know. just thinking because this episode may not come out within the next 10 days. Does that mean that people listening to this right now aren't going to be able to potentially take advantage of, of what you guys are doing? You know, the website will still be up. So, you know, you can go to the website and I'm sure you can put that in the link and, and people mm -hmm. will be able to, to do something. Maybe that just means we won't be promoting it specifically or maybe it will actually disappear. I don't know the answer to that. If you really, really want the book. I think that's kind of cool. You know, I think that's kind of cool that it disappears. And the thing is, with yeah. life is if you really, really want something, you can get it. There's that's a way true. to get it. That's true. That's absolutely There's a way true. to get it. You know, I'm a professional poet. So that's absolutely true. <laughs> and you're a professional meditation teacher. Yeah. You know? Man, you've been meditating every day for four years. You're like the model meditation student. I know you learned with Emily mm -hmm. Fletcher, who's, who's an amazing meditation teacher. And we, any meditation teacher would just really enjoy hearing that the person that they helped to train has been doing it like clockwork. Can you just uh, briefly talk about your life before daily meditation versus your life after four years of daily meditation? Yeah, it's been invaluable for me. It has been one of the greatest tools for self-discovery and for release of just old shit, you know, stuff that you can't intellectualize you know, just energy, right? Emotion, energy in motion. And uh, I think meditation has been a real outlet for that stuff to move through me. I could not recommend it enough to people who have never done it or to people who've done it and put it down for a while. It's a non-negotiable part of my life now in some form or fashion. And I would like to maintain that for the rest of my life. Because if it's been beneficial to me up until now, why would I ever stop? So meditation has been a game changer. How are you defining success these days? It's a hard question, man. Mm -hmm. I it find the older you get, the less, the more ambiguous <laughs> that answer becomes. So I'm curious where you are right now with it. Well, how would you define it for yourself? Because you're saying the older that you get, the that changes. So how did it change for you? For me, success these days is being yourself. Like if you can create an environment and whether that's internal or external, where you feel like, okay, in that last hour, I was 80% myself versus mm -hmm. 10 years ago when I was in a similar type of environment, I was only 40% myself and I hit the other 60%. So that's how that's my only gauge for success. It's not about money. It's not about how much time I have on my hands. It's just about my own personal impact of being myself because I know that when I'm myself, I am the most useful and the most helpful in, mm -hmm. in whatever environment I'm in. That's a great answer, man. 
That is a really, really great answer. I don't think I would have thought of that, but I completely agree with that. And I'm still figuring out how to be more myself. And maybe it's not something that you can figure out. You just have to be open to showing up and be willing to be judged. I have a line that says, you have to be willing to not be liked in order to truly be loved. Wow. That's you? I mean, it, it's everyone. I mean, who, you know, who, who's anyone said anything that hasn't been said before in some way <laughs> right. that's been said a million times, but that, that was a unique thought that came to my mind. Mm-hmm. And it's a lesson that I'm relearning day after day, a specifically hard question though, for me to answer now in this quarantine, mm-hmm. you know, because I haven't done what I do for like nine months in a, in front of a live audience. I mean, I've done hundreds of digital shows, but I haven't felt the energy of a room in such a long time. I've never gone that long in my adult life. I mean, since I was probably 17 years old, I'm 42 now. So that's definitely been confronting to my ego to know that I'm privileged to be able to quarantine and stay Mm -hmm. in the house, Mm -hmm. but also to not be able to do the things that make me feel like I have purpose in the world. And then that makes me have to think, well, what is your value when the thing that you think is your value is removed? And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that you aren't what you do. What you do can be deeply intertwined with who you are, but in the end, it doesn't matter what you make or who you're with or, you know, what you have, you know, you're a soul and uh, that has to be your value. And so maybe that really does fully connect with what you're saying is being willing to fully show up and not need to be celebrated or whatever, man, you know, just, just do you and be okay with that. And then finally, someone's listening to this. They're a spoken word artist, very small level, small scale. What word of wisdom would you give to that person? Or, or you know, just to make it more personal, you could go back to, to 19-year-old in Q, mm-hmm. having, having now gone 20-something years down the road, what would you say to your younger self? I would say the same thing that I would say to myself now, which is, it's going to be okay. it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay no matter what it's gonna be okay i wish that i was open enough to hear that from someone other than myself at that time but i wasn't and i hope that someone's open enough to hear that from me now because it really will be okay i know times are difficult right now and Everyone is trying to grasp to control things that are out of their control in their own ways. But uh, yeah, it's like I said before, let's just let go, enjoy the ride, try to be good to people, try to be good to yourself. And if you want to alchemize that negative energy, try creating a poem, see what happens. Beautiful. I think we've made it to the end of the tunnel, man. Just one quick reflection. I always like to tie this back around to how we started. And just reflecting back on 
<laughs> your favorite activity playing with GI Joe uh-huh. toys. <laughs> no Joe. <laughs> well, you know, you, the way you phrased it, you talked about the warfare aspect of it and battling and things like that. And so obviously there's some foreshadowing with, you know, rap battling and, you know, freestyle battling, but I think really what that's about, because I play a lot with GI Joe. I also play a lot with star Wars action mm-hmm. figures and looking back now as an adult on that, what it was really about was storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're telling stories about who these people are. Mm. And obviously you're identifying with maybe some of them over others and yours was snake eyes, who was like the most mysterious one. Right. And so it's not surprising that you kind of, you, you're, you're mostly known by your moniker, even though you don't hide your identity, your true identity, but you're kind of mm. like a superhero in a sense, you're, or not like a superhero, like you got special powers, but more like a GI Joe figure, which is, Hey, there's this, there's this, elite group of people who are out here really battling the the idea that you have to fit into convention you have to be these people but you can really just be yourself and it's okay being yourself mm. and you're telling these stories that basically give people permission to connect more with their heart and with themselves mm. and so that's the way i kind of read that and I, and and obviously i could be projecting onto it or making a lot out of it but i don't i don't know about that i think I think, you know, the reason why I sort of structure my my conversations in this way is because I want us together, you know, you and I, but also the audience to kind of look at the plot points along your path. And I think you can see a connection between these things. So I don't know how arbitrary any of these little moments are. And if we had another five hours to like really unpack it, we could probably make even more connections. But But yeah, man, I just want to acknowledge you for showing up in the ways that you've shown up and for having the courage to put yourself out there and to go through those twenties with all your other friends getting ahead of you career wise, relationship wise, and you're out there, you know, struggling and trying to convince yourself and coach yourself through showing up at these events and making a name for yourself and eventually graduating from that to, I think where you have to get to ultimately to make the biggest difference, which is of being of service to something bigger than yourself and having your own mission. And so I've been, I've been inspired by, by you. There are things that I've seen you do that I have adopted as a host. And, um, one really, being <laughs> the group massage, Like When oh, I did the yeah. shine and I saw you do that at the magic giant, concert that you opened up for at uh, yeah. that place in Silver Lake. Mm-hmm. I started doing that, man. And and when you're doing that and you're up on stage and you look around the audience, there is not one person who's not smiling. Mm. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And the stretching and all of that. You know, and so yeah. The secret about that, which we won't be able to do anymore for quite a while, if ever, at least mm-hmm. in the next five years. But the everyone touching each other there is a magic trick to it because when everyone comes in an audience it could be 100 people 50 people 2000 people it doesn't matter they're all their own island and something as simple as touching each other in a way that's non-confrontational and funny and silly it immediately creates an energetic community 
once everyone has touched each other at the same time, they're one organism almost. And so when they release, they are a group rather than individuals. And individuals have their own shit going on. They're judgy. They're da-da-da-da. But once they do that, they become one, at least for a moment. And I think that lasts into the rest of whatever event you're doing. So I'm glad you took that. It's, it's not for me. It's for anyone. Yeah, man. And we did that at the Shine for five years. So there's like thousands of people who've, who've had that experience. Thanks to me seeing you do that with, with us. But that's just one tiny little, you know, I could take, I could take a multitude of different things from your performances. But yeah, just the way you show up, man, and your, the magnitude of your voice and the permission that you give us to just be there and pay attention is, is really phenomenal. So just want to thank you for that. And thanks for being here on the podcast. I didn't want to tear your, your story is one of the ones that I thought about in starting my podcast. I know you also have a podcast that you're going to be launching hopefully soon. And I'm super curious to hear the conversations. I don't know if you're going to be doing conversations or solo podcasts, but I'm, I'm super curious to see what you bring to this, to this space. Thank you, man. That, that means a lot to me. Yeah. We're just gonna, at the beginning, interview poets. Beautiful. You know, we're just going to tell the modern poet story in America and around the world. And hopefully that's something that is interesting and inspiring for people. Beautiful. Well, thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with NQ. You can follow him on social media at NQ Life. That's I-N, the letter Q, and then the word life, L-I-F-E, one word. And since there are no performances happening right now, obviously, you can get the next best thing, which is to grab a copy of NQ's book of poems called Inquire Within, which is available everywhere books are sold. And if you want to support this podcast, one of the most helpful things you can do is leave a review, which is only going to take you literally 10 seconds. You can time me. If you're using the podcast app, just glance down at your screen where it says at the end of the tunnel, which is in purple. Scroll down past the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews. Tap that star all the way on the far right. And that's it. You just left a review. So thank you for that. And if you want to go the extra mile since you're already there, feel free to leave a written review as well, right? Either way, you can get all of the show notes and a transcript of this interview with NQ at lightwatkins.com. And while you're there, you'll see a pop-up to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out every morning for years that has now been turned into a book called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which comes out in May of 2021. So thanks again for taking the time to listen to this episode and for sharing this episode with your friends and followers. Please make sure you tag me on social media at Light Watkins so I can shout you out. And in the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. 
you'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.